All right, well, let's get into the sermon today. And uh, we'll continue in the book of Revelation. So let's pray. God, um, we need you. And again, it can just be so easy to rush through moments of life on to the next thing, on to lunch, on to a movie, on to work, on to helping others, on to thinking and scheduling what's next. I pray that we wouldn't be that way this morning, that our heart's posture and our spirit's posture would be before you to honor you and to worship you and to learn from you and submit to you. So give us eyes to see and hearts with fertile soil, minds that can comprehend, ears to hear, Father, feet that want to run with obedience. May the blessing that is promised in the book of Revelation come to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and we've been going through the seven churches. And today we will address the final church, the church at Laodicea. So many of you guys are aware of the church of Laodicea, but Laodicea was known as being independent and wealthy. They were highly proud of this idea of being independent and wealthy. And they had banking, clothing, manufacturing, and they specialized in black wool. And one of the things that they were highly proud of was their black wool. This meant a lot to them. They also had a renowned medical school, which was famous for its ointments, for the ears and the eyes. Ironically, though, the ointment couldn't open up their spiritual eyes as Jesus tells them in verse 18 that they are blind. So it's kind of ironic. Sometimes what we perceive as our greatest strength, God has a different perspective of that. Laodicea was destroyed many times, either by war or by earthquake. And the earthquake of A.D. 60 destroyed the city and many cities around it. It was said that the Roman government offered significant aid for the rebuild of Laodicea, but they denied it. So you start to see a little bit of the independence that they carried, the pride that they carried, but you also see the wealth. No matter how prideful you are, if you can't rebuild your city, you're gonna receive aid from the government, right? So the earthquake destroyed them, and they said, hey, government, we got it, not worried about it. So when Jesus mentions the famous lukewarm statement that you guys are familiar with in a few verses, the idea of being lukewarm was not new to them. So Laodicea was not in a good area for drinking water. So what they had to do is they had to create substantial aqueduct aqueducts. So they had to create this system of aqueducts to um, bring in water. Now, the two types of waters that they had to bring in is one was kind of like really warm water um, coming up from the earth, right? So there was this warm water that what they would do is they would aqueduct it in. But by the time that this water would reach them, guess what temperature it was? 
lukewarm. There was another water that they brought in, and the other water that they would bring in was cold water. But through traveling through their system, by the time that this cold water reached them, it was what? Lukewarm. So this idea of being lukewarm was not new to the church of Laodicea. They understood how being, how valuable something hot was and how valuable something cold was. And they also understood how disgusting it was to have lukewarm water. So this statement was not new to them. If the city wasn't rebuilding, they were thriving from a worldly standpoint. See, this church put so much into their financial well-being that they um, nauseated God. God was sick of it. Um, inside, they thought that they were something because of their independence and because of their wealth. This church doesn't get an applause. This church doesn't get a praise. All that this church gets is rebuke and warning. It's scary, isn't it? All that this church got was rebuke and warning. But as we do always when we go through the churches, first, Jesus' characteristics. So let's look at the characteristics that he presents here in Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We can trust what God says. We have to realize that you and I can trust what God says. So he says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen. So Jesus is saying he is the amen. So what does the amen mean? Well, I believe most of us understand that amen means certainty, right? Or so be it. So when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, amen, we're saying, well, hey, in Jesus' name, so something that Jesus wants of us, and then so be it. So I believe when we pray prayers of God, I pray that you would help us be a witness to our community and to our family. We can pray that in Jesus' name because that's his will for us. And then we can say, amen, so be it. So what he's saying is, so be it. This means certainty. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So he is yes and amen. It is finished completely in him. All of Jesus' promises from the past and the present have come true and will come true. Therefore, he is telling them that they can trust him. He's telling them that you better believe what I am saying. He's letting them know, hey, look, I am the yes and the amen. I am. I am the amen. So because I'm the amen, the review that I'm getting ready to give you, trust it. Because it's going to happen. He then continues to say he's faithful and the true witness, right? He's telling them, the Laodicean church, that he isn't like them. He's faithful and true. 
He isn't like us. He's faithful and he's true. And Jesus affirms this in um, John 8, verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I have come from and where I am going. And see, Pilate couldn't even find fault in Jesus. John 18, 37 through 38. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to truth. Everyone on the, si everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. What, uh, with this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered them, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So there's a whole lot more going on there, but even Pilate didn't find fault. So when he delivers them, when Jesus delivers the Laodicean church, this assessment, they must recognize that his words are truthful and accurate. I know we've all been in situations before <clears throat> where someone said something about us and we just didn't believe it, right? Anyone ever been there? Anyone ever told someone a story where you're like, listen, this is an issue in your life and they're like, I don't see it. How many of you guys have been married? <laughs> okay, you say it all the time. You just don't see it. You just don't see it. Someone's not seeing it. So, what Jesus is saying is, look, you can trust me. I'm truthful. My words are final. I mean this. I'm the yes and the amen. So take them seriously. Don't be blinded. Don't we forget that today? Don't we forget that God's words, haven't the past week, we for, haven't we forgot that God's words are final and they're true and they carry authority? Some of the actions that we've made, we've forgotten about that. We've been blinded. And then he says, he's the ruler of God's creation. So one author says it this way. He is not a creature or part of creation. He is its beginning, its creator, its originator. Whether it be uh, creation or the church, he is Lord, ruler, and chief. He is the first in time and position the Laodicean Christians either forgot or ignored the exalted and preeminent place that he belongs only, that, sorry, preeminent place that belongs only to Jesus. They lost sight of who he is and what he has done and is doing. What he starts, he will complete. What he begins, he will finish. Yet this church was missing it. The Laodicean church was missing it. They didn't get a single good mark on their review. What's interesting, though, is this church didn't even know that they were this far gone. See, some of us in here, not looking at specific faces, other than myself, the man in the mirror, right? Some of us in here might not even know how far gone we might be. Isn't that a scary place? That deceit can come into our lives and us not recognize it. C.S. 
See, the church didn't understand how far they were going. How could that happen? So we're going to look at the indicators that Jesus provides through his evaluation. So let's start the evaluation. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, or sorry, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So what's he saying? You are lukewarm. This church was neither hot nor cold. And this is one of the most misinterpreted scriptures that I hear the church use often. And this is not saying that Jesus prefers for you to be on fire or completely turned off. And that's how the church has often used it. When people read this, they say, well, Jesus wants you to be hot for him, like just on fire, evangelist, radical, missionary, preaching, teaching, dancing, free, serving, giving, tithing, all those things, like super hot. He wants you to either be super hot or he just wants you to just give up, not care about him at all. Have any of you guys ever felt like that verse meant that? You have. A lot of you have. And a lot of you have taught that way. And I, too, when I never studied this, believed that that's what it uh, was pointing to as well. Now, that's not at all what's going on here because context helps us understand the, the audience and the context help us understand what Jesus is pointing to. So remember, when Jesus is talking to them, they understood what lukewarm really meant and how disgusting it was. So you remember me telling you about the aqueducts, right? One brought in hot water while the other brought in cold water. Yet by the time each water reached them, it was lukewarm. So what was it? It was useless. See, you're trying to bring in hot water because hot water is going to do something for you that cold water can't do. And you're trying to bring in cold water because cold water can do something for you that hot water can't do. So maybe they were trying to bring in hot water because hot water brings a soothing sensation to you when you bathe. Or maybe um, the hot water can help bring certain kinds of healing to you, right? Sit in a warm bath for a while. Same thing with cold water. Maybe cold water, it's more refreshing for you. Or maybe you need to take a cold bath to help your muscles. So bringing in these different heated waters, they had a plan for them. So they had a plan for the hot, and they had a plan for the cold. So when we think about this, we can't think of hot being better than cold. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The way we have to think about them is they were equally beneficial, but yet the plan that God created the hot for and the plan that God created the cold for, by the time that they moved, they were no longer useful. So what God is telling the Laodicean church right now is the plan that I created you for, and you for, and you for, and you for, and you for. And maybe he's telling some of us in here, or all of us in here today, what I've created you for, and you for, and you for. All these things that he created us for, by the time that life gets to us, 
And by the time that we enter the world and by the time we go to work and some hard things happen, by the time that life happens and we travel just a little bit, we're no longer useful. We're just lukewarm. We can't be soothing. We can't be hot anymore. We can't be soothing and help. Nope. It's working. The elders are helping me process it. If you know, you know. And it wasn't even that bad. But the warmth, it can't help bring healing to us, right? And the cold, it can't help bring refreshment to us. Has life and has our heart and where we've traveled made us useless as a church? Are you useless? Are you useless in your purpose? Because what Jesus was telling the Laodicean church is what he created them for. They're useless in that. That's scary, isn't it? That's really scary to think that Christ might say, what I created you for, you're useless in. Yet Jesus was sharing this um, spiritually to them. He wasn't talking about the waters. This was happening to this church because they were indifferent. They wanted both sides, right? They wanted to be a follower of Christ, but they also wanted to be liked by the world. They wanted to be followers of Christ, but they never wanted to share the gospel. They wanted to be followers of Christ, but they never wanted to give. They wanted to be followers of Christ, but they also wanted to party on the weekend. So what happens is, is when you become indifferent, you're not hot nor cold, right? You're not living in that purpose. When you become indifferent about faith, what do you become? Lukewarm and useless. Amen? That's scary. Ooh, how many indifferent people do we have in here today? While I'm preaching, I'm always preaching to myself every Sunday. While I'm preaching, I'm asking myself, how do I become less indifferent about Christ? I think we join a small group and we become accountable. This has all just been a long, long, long introduction for small groups again. So, <laughs> we join a small group. This church was compromising. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to compromise. And I don't think when I look out in the congregation today, I don't see one person in here that says, I want to compromise on my relationship with Christ. I don't want to compromise at work. We don't have people who want to compromise. And it's not about saying I want to compromise or I don't want to compromise. It's about being deceived into compromising. But this church was indifferent. They were compromising. And the thing about that is God does not tolerate people being indifferent about him. And God does not tolerate people who compromise. We've learned that through the first six churches in Revelation. So while 
Christians elsewhere in Asia were being persecuted by the Jews. We saw that in Revelation 2, verse 9, and Revelation 3, 9. We don't see where this church was being persecuted, even though they had a large Jewish crowd. So the Laodicean church, they had a large Jewish crowd. Many uh, populated the area, and many Jews were those who were persecuting the church for following Jesus. So the Laodiceans, Laodiceans had many Jews, but yet we don't see in this letter where they were persecuted. See, those in Laodicea were so complacent and self-sufficient. Now listen, so complacent and self-sufficient in their wealth that they were not effective for Christ. Now, there's many different levels of wealth in here today. A statistic that I saw a couple years ago might be different, might have significantly increased, who knows. The average week or daily salary, I believe it's a daily salary around the world is $2 a day. Two American dollars a day. I made that at lunch in high school, going around asking everyone for change. I made about $3.73 a day just asking people for their lunch money. And if you don't know the story, I bought my first iPod with that. <laughs> just went up and asked. And the people who were really nice would give you a dollar, and you felt like a dollar was so much at lunch. Three, two dollars is the average daily salary around the world. So who in here is financially rich? Participating. Who in here is financially rich? I'm rich. So we're not here talking about those who make over six figures, you being rich, and those who only make $8,000 a year. Two dollars a day average salary. And what was happening in the Laodicean church is they already told the government, we don't need your help. We don't need your financial help. We don't need any kind of help because we believe and we trust in our money. When we get the raise, when the um, stock market or retirement is thriving, when we do good yard sailing, or it's not yard sailing, what is it? Crafting, and they don't make any money on that anyways. <laughs> I mean, you just feel good doing it, but whatever you're doing, selling cards, selling old stuff, whatever you're doing, you get a little bit more financial security. This church was not being persecuted. They were complacent and self-sufficient. Even the typical bullies of the Jews didn't find any reason to persecute them because this church was so blended in. Isn't that scary? The Jews who were the religious bullies that we've seen persecuting many churches and many Christians as we study throughout the Bible, they didn't bully the Laodicean church at all. You want to know why? because they weren't preaching the gospel. They were complacent, and they looked just like them. Do you look just like your friends 
It's still relevant, shared it several times. A friend five years ago asked me, he said, Joey, I am not. Scripture says those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And he said, I'm not being persecuted. Why am I not being persecuted? And I looked at him and I said, because you're not preaching the gospel. That's how you don't make friends, by the way. I didn't ask him, I told him, you're not preaching the gospel and that's why you're not being persecuted. This church was not preaching the gospel because they wanted to fit in. And because they wanted to blend in and fit in, guess what? The Jews were not coming after them. In this life, when you preach the gospel, you will lose friends, you will be talked about and you will be persecuted. Now, persecution today will look a whole lot different than what it did then. But I want to ask you, why are you not being persecuted? Why? Now, what gives us greater boldness and willingness to be persecuted is when we just go get alone and spend time with Jesus. Amen? We have to have time with him. We have to go to those deep places to create that relationship. But this church wasn't hot or cold. They didn't stand out. They simply blended in. And I know we've been beating it. So how many of us are blending into society? How many of us are blending into our work? How many of us are blending in to our friend groups or to our family groups or within the school systems, wherever we are, how much are we desiring to blend in so that we do not cause controversy? We have to live within our purpose, and this church was trying to blend in. They were neither hot or cold. So what does Jesus say to them? What does Jesus say to those who are not living into their purpose? What does Jesus say to those who are not being obedient? What he says is this is I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, vomit is not a fun thing. Um, last year, when we were sick, um, or a couple years ago now, actually, um, I hate puking, so like my mind was telling me no, but my body was telling me yes. There was a song about that years ago, too. <laughs> so my mind was telling me no, my body's telling me yes, and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. So I just went into the bathroom and lifted up the lid and um, just dry heaved. And dry heaving is a whole lot worse than letting it out, right? But the point of that is puking is disgusting. Puking is something no one wants to participate in. Puking, your body pukes because it has to get rid of whatever inside is bothering it making it sick. So that's the body's response. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out. You don't deserve to be within the body. you got to get out of here. So when our heart condition becomes so deceived and repentance isn't near, God will turn man over to their sin, destruction, and loss. So when Jesus says he'll spit you out, what he's saying is, I'm going to turn you over to the things that you desire. Romans 1, 20 through 28. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, an, of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural, relation, uh, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. So when God spits them out, what he's saying is, look, I'm, I'm handing you over to your mess. I'm handing you over to your desires. God was warning the Laodicean church about their future of being handed over if they didn't repent of their security in their wealth and independence. Their security in their wealth and their independence. They had a false security. Um, Jeff Bezos he was the owner of Amazon. He created Amazon. I believe he shared most of his shares within the past year. Someone once said that if um, a grain of rice represented $150,000, $150,000, he could have a 50-pound bag of rice and that be all of his money. When Jeff Bezos, <laughs> how many of y'all rich today? <laughs> Boy, I just take a half grain of rice. <laughs> I just take a pound of it. I'll be set for life. Jeff Bezos, with all of his money, with everything that he has in this life, when he, may, when he meets the creator, when he meets Jesus face to face, what good is any of that money gonna do him? Any of it. What good will any of that money do him? 
Won't do him any good. Not one bit. Zilch, zero. Nada. What good, what good is my tenth of a piece of rice going to do for me when I meet God? Well, what it can do for me is say, God, I didn't put my faith in that rice. I didn't put my faith in the rices that I had in a bank or a 401k. I didn't put my faith in that. I didn't put my hope in that. That rice meant nothing to me. I was willing to give that rice away because I trust that you will provide for me every need that I ever have. But what do we do? We say bigger banks, bigger houses, stock market thriving. I feel good about life. God is good. Why is it we don't hear as many God is goods when the stock market's not th thriving, right? Why don't we see as many big smiles when the stock market's not thriving? Because we are deceived to an extent that there's security in money. Verse 17, you say, and here's the proof that God's talking. You're like, Joey, he's not talking about finances to the Laodicean church. Bet. Right here. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus is directly pointing the finger at their security that they have in their finances. And I know there's some of us in here today that say, that's not me. Receive the message. Receive the message. Because maybe it's not you right now, but it might be you when you win that mega billion. How many of y'all have been playing that mega billion? Mm-hmm. I see. I see your hands up. Hey. Amen. How much are you going to tie to the church when you win? 20%. Hey, what are we going to do with it? We're not, I mean, we'd at least change the carpet. <laughs> I mean, we would. We would change the carpet. We'd probably paint some walls and fix some cracks, change some bathroom stuff. But you know what we do with the rest of it, Ray? We would try to help. We'd help Seeds of Grace finish their ministry. We would help other people do what they need to do, right? Um, we wouldn't sit on it. We wouldn't put it in a... Retirement fund for the church. Our church does not find security in its finances. Amen? Yeah. So you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and you do not need, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What was, what was um, it about? No, yeah. What was it about them that Jesus found so disgusting that he had to puke them out? Not that they caved in persecution. Not that they returned to a pagan idolatry or submit to overt moral compromise such as sexual immorality. They submit to the prevalent materialism of their city. Materialism was deceiving them. Jesus does not fault them for being materialistically 
or materially prosperous. He doesn't say, hey, you have money, that's a bad thing. Don't hear that. Because I know we're all questioning, well, our income levels. Is my income level not rich? Or if I make this much, is that too much? Or if my 401k is too high, is that too much? Jesus wasn't faulting them for having money. What Jesus was faulting them for um, yeah, was accepting the values of the materialistic culture. Values that spiritually corrupted them and blinded them to see their issue. They were so focused on what society was saying about money that somehow it deceived them in their relationship with Christ. So we must ask, what is it about materialism or prosperity that makes it so easy to stray away from Jesus without even realizing it? Because materialism, what's unique about materialism is materialism is morally vague, isn't it? What's too much, what's too little? It's harder to see because things like idolatry and sexual immorality are pretty clear, aren't they? They just are. But materialism's a little bit harder to see. The white lines between right and wrong with materialism are vague. Biblically speaking, what's too big? What's too big of a house? What's too, too big of a retirement? What's too many cars? What's too much land? What's too many toys? Biblically speaking, what would we say about those things? And there's plenty of arguments that we could argue, right? If you see someone, if you have two coats and you see someone who needs one, how dare you not give them a coat, right? Whenever you see the least of these and you don't help them, um, whatever you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Where was I hungry? Where was I thirsty? Where was I in jail? So materialistically, we need to help people, right? But then also Abraham was loaded. He had a bunch. And God was okay with Abraham having a bunch. But Abraham was also faithful with that. So can you be wealthy and faithful to Jesus? So what are the dangers of materialism? According to today's scripture, it deadens our ability to see our spiritual need. So when we focus on financial security and our financial future, more than we do just spending time with the heart of Jesus, it will deaden our minds and our spirits. How many of you guys want to be deadened to Christ? I don't want to be deadened to him. Because here's what we know. We understand that it's just easy to pick on the church this way, and I'm not picking on them, but it's just easy to point out. It's easy to talk about sexual sin or gossip, right? Like you understand how that will deaden your faith. But often in church land, it's not talked about how being materialistic and pursuing money as something that you can put your faith in will deaden your faith, but it will. One author says this, economic self-sufficiency makes it harder to appreciate your complete spiritual 
incompetence apart from personally depending on Jesus. This is why material poverty generally correlates with spiritual prosperity. Jesus' public ministry and church movements. While material prosperity generally correlates with spiritual poverty. Material prosperity generally correlates spiritual poverty. The other reason why materialism is so dangerous is culture is always telling us it will make us happy. Materialism promises happiness. Just look at all the ads, right? How many ads do we see on TV? How many of our friends tell us, I just bought this new Cub Cadet and it makes me really happy. And then the other friend's like, well, I'm going to do you up. I'm going to buy me a John Deere. And then the other one's like, I can't afford any of that. I'm going to Hillbilly Heaven at, uh, what's it called? Rural King. I got me a Rural King tractor. Stu got the Rural King tractor. What's that really cheap tool place? Harbor Freight. You better believe that. I go in there. I think you spend 20 bucks on it. You can throw it away for all I care. That's my spot. Because we don't have any place to store it either. But there's always this debate of how materialistic things are going to make you happy. Well, you're happy with it until you got that $750 car payment a month. $1,200 tractor payment a month. So the world through advertisements and other people, they say that materialism will make you happy. Of course, we all know that we would say that money can't buy happiness. We would all say that. Yet we can't seem to get away from aspiring to have greater wealth. Right? We keep on saying money can't buy happiness, but we aspire for more materialistic things. Can anyone relate? All right, I'm going to pray for the rest of you all. In the book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, the author says this, vast numbers of us have been seduced into believing that having more wealth in material possession is essentially um, the good life. Formidable body of research highlights what for most of us is quite counterintuitive fact. Even when people obtain more money and material goods, they do not become more satisfied with their lives or more psychologically healthy because of it. More specifically, once people are, about po um, are above poverty levels of income, gains in wealth have little to no um, incremental payoff in terms of happiness or well-being. Moreover, merely aspiring to have greater wealth or more material possessions is likely to be associated with increased personal unhappiness. People with strong materialistic values and desires report more symptoms of anxiety, are at greater risk of depression, use more alcohol and drugs, and are more impoverished and have more impoverished personal relationships. Thus, insofar as people have adopted the American dream of stuffing their pockets, 
they seem that the extent um, that their souls are emptied, that their self and souls are empty. So the more, statistically speaking, the more you make over the poverty limit and the more you desire and crave things, the less you are content about life. So Jesus is frustrated with this church because Jesus is a jealous God who knows that only he can satisfy. Yet they didn't put enough safeguards against materialism because they wanted to fit in. Remember, Jesus said, I created you to be hot, some of you, and I created others of you to be cold so that you could have a purpose. But instead of being hot and being cold, you wanted to fit into society. And because you wanted to fit into society, you started to pursue these materialistic things so that you could brag about what you had or allegedly feel good about the things that you have. And he said, what that has done is that has drawn you away from your purpose of being hot or cold. Your desire to have materialistic things and putting safety in that has blinded you. Simply what Jesus was saying is Jesus isn't enough. Because of your desire for these things, Jesus wasn't enough. So what I want to ask you is, ladies, do you need that trinket from Target or Hobby, or Hobby Lobby? Or you believe in the lie that materialism will make you happy? Guys are like, yeah, can you add a few more things to that list? What about those candles, those oils, those new bed sheets? I don't know about you. I'd probably change my bed sheets once every, like not, I'd wash them. (laughs) (laughs) Hear me out, right? But I might buy new bed sheets once every five years. Maybe. Like, I don't know how, I mean, I would wash them. I, don't, I can't guarantee how, how much in a year. I just can't. Maybe when I spilled my coffee or General Tso's chicken on it. But women, you take them to Target for blankets, feel those things, the blankets and put them on their faces and new curtains and bed sheets. Husbands, do I got a witness in here? Candles, smell those things. I come out, I come out having eczema, not eczema, but emphysema, what's it called? (laughs) Emphysema? Someone help me. No, I already have asthma. What's like the, what's the coughing thing? Like, no, of course I got bronchitis. It's like the chronic, like breathing, whatever. I smell so many candles, I got breathing problems. How about that? I got eczema because of smelling camera or smelling cameras, smelling candles. Pray, pray for me. So women are doing all that stuff, right? I don't even know about that stuff. But there's certain things that women are drawn to that men are not. But guys, let me tell you what, we need those wrenches, we need that new saw, we need that new tractor, we need that new truck. You better believe that we need a bag of beef jerky every time we walk into the store. We need those things. We need the bigger, better TV. 
we need. We need the new clothes, the new glasses, the new shoes. There's a need for material, materialism within our lives. Because Jesus isn't enough. Is Jesus enough in your life? Or is it the financial security that is enough? See, instead of the Laodicean church, um, so instead of Laodicea being a church that showed that it could be happy without pursuing worldly things, they were a church that was just deceived as the world. They were the same. And do you know, statistically speaking, there is no difference in the American church and those who don't go to church with credit card debt. There's no difference in the church, in the world, when it comes to credit card debt. So what does that mean? When I used to have credit cards, and I would use my credit cards, I would use my credit cards because that meant I didn't have money, right? I needed to spend on money that I didn't have. And I know the argument's like, well, I use, this isn't an argument for or against credit cards right now. But I believe the last statistic that I remember is the average home in America is, and this is a light figure, is $7,000 in debt with their credit card payments. The average home in America. And what this other statistic was saying is they found that within the church and within the world, there was no difference. Now look, Church, I want to tell you this. If you're spending $7,000 on your food, I don't think that's where our debt is coming from. So if you need to eat, please come talk to me. You don't need to go into debt buying food. Amen? If someone in here needs food, we will help you. If someone in here needs clothes, we will help you. So the church is not going into debt, hear this, because they need food or clothes. I understand sometimes people hit rock bottom and, and they need a mortgage payment or a rent payment. If you need rent or mortgage, call us. We can help you. Amen? We're going to ask some hard questions. How did you get here? How do we help move you forward, right? It's not like the church is going to give free money. We're going to grow you out of that and disciple you out of that. But it's not because you need to put your mortgage on your credit card every month. The issue is this. It's, well, my kids need this PlayStation 5, or they won't be cool anymore, or I need this new cell phone. And that's just one credit card. They're not talking about all the other credit cards. They're not talking about the Target credit card, the Macy's credit card, the whatever credit card. It's just one credit card. The issue is that the American church is desiring materialistic things so much that they're willing to go in debt for it. They're willing to say, I will be $7,000 on average in the hole so that I can buy this happiness. Isn't that a sad statistic? Jesus is jealous and he alone brings us peace and fulfillment. Another statistic said this, 
there is also little to no difference between the two in charitable giving. So there's no difference in the church and the world when it comes to charitable giving. Why? Why? Why is the church not the most giving? The church of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who lived a life we shouldn't live, who died a death we shouldn't die, for that we can, so that we can have a relationship with him. Why is it that the church in the world doesn't give? Or why is it that they give the same? Your buddies who are going out partying give just as much money as you. That's crazy, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? You're like, don't talk about my money. How many of you guys are like, don't talk about my money? But aren't you materialistic person? Don't talk about my money. It's my money. No, it's not. God gave it to you. And the money that God has given you, he has given to you to steward, to help further his kingdom. Amen? Why is the church not far surpassing the world in giving? See, the Laodicean church, they were so deceived that they didn't realize it until Jesus was honest with them. And even for some of them, they still didn't get it. But we need Jesus' honesty. We need it. He says this, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So they thought that things were good, but Jesus told them something different. This church needed God's truth. The truth was uh, that they were in dire need of a spiritual awakening. Their desire to fit in and be relevant was leading them astray. And Jesus exposed their poverty, deception, and desperate condition. So what was Jesus' plan? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So we're just going to look at, you know, a couple of those phrases, to buy from him. So what, this is another proof as we look at the context that Jesus was dealing with a materialistic issue. He's saying instead of buying from the world, instead of buying from the people around you, buy from me, right? Buy from me, buy from me, buy from me. And what he, he um, says is, Buy from him, consume him, because these things will bring life for eternity. So buy refined, um, gold refined in fire, so we could be rich in knowing him, right? So buy gold refined in fire so that we can be rich in him. Buy from him white clothes, so that our shame is covered in his righteousness. And buy from him salve so that we can have eyes to see. Jesus was telling them that all vain reliance on their own righteousness, wisdom, and materialism is trash. 
to buy from him. Paul sets this example in Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What Paul is saying is I'm willing to give up everything for the sake of knowing him. I'm willing to give up everything for the sake of knowing Christ. So um, he says, buy from him, buy from him, buy from him. And if you don't, what does he do? He disciplines the ones that he loves. How many of you guys like discipline? I don't like discipline, but I'm learning to appreciate it, right? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This is good news that Jesus wrote them a letter because it means that he still loved them. He wasn't just writing the Laodicean church a letter to say, hey, this is how bad you are, go on. He was writing them a letter out of discipline and rebuke and in trying to encourage them to say, repent. So he didn't give up on them. It's good news that he wrote them this letter because he didn't give up on them. So when Jesus snatches you up, don't lose heart. He loves you. When Jesus snatches you up, don't lose heart. He loves you. Just take it as your need to repent. Admit that you are wrong and turn to God. Turn to God. So as we begin to wrap this up, for those who hear, to open up their heart to him. Jesus disciplines us and he calls us to repentance of our materialism and our eyes being blinded. And he wants us to open up our heart. Verse 20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will come with me. Through our materialism, and through our sin, and through our blindedness, Jesus is encouraging us to repent, but guess what he's also encouraging us to do? Open up the door to him. Open up the door to him today. You know, there's been days that I've really felt God knocking on my door. Just like, God, I got to get the sermon done today. God, I got to go get stuff for Bible Club. And he's just knocked on the door. And then the next day came, and guess what? He knocks on the door. Hey, just, just spend some time with me. Kids will be okay if they only drink Mountain Dew this week. <laughs> and they only eat the best pizza in town. All you can eat style, they'll be okay. Just spend time with me. He's knocking. He's knocking. Just spend time with me. Just spend time with me. He's knocking. And you know what I recognize? As much as I have ignored that knock, each morning the knock comes back. Can anyone testify to that? Anyone in here witness to that? He keeps on knocking. 
In Eastern culture, in Near Eastern culture, an evening meal is less about the food, but it's more about relationships. So we must open up the door to his knock because experiencing his love and his forgiveness is foundational to our rescue. Did you guys hear that? Experiencing his love and forgiveness is foundational to our rescue. We were created to have a love relationship with him and until we have one with him, we are spiritually poor. And no matter how many materialistic things we own, our life amounts to nothing. He's knocking on our door as an invitation. So as this verse reiterates the whole Bible as we wrap up, God doesn't expect you to make the first move. He wants us to have a relation, he wants to have a relationship with us so much that he comes to our door. God is coming to your door today. God has came to your door today. Jesus will keep on knocking on your door. Jesus made the first move. He was willing, Jesus was willing to come down from heaven to die on the cross for our sins. Amen? We didn't ask him. He did it. So Jesus always makes the first move. The, the house doesn't have to be in perfect shape. So the house that I'm talking about is you don't have to be in perfect shape. All that Jesus wants is entry into your home. Amen? So he knocks and he knocks and he knocks until we answer. And unfortunately, some people will never answer that door. And for those who do not answer the door of the knock of God's heart, in a relationship with him, what ends up happening? Those people will be where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that place is called hell. But he's so kind to continually knock on our doors. So today what I ask is this. Is will you ask him about the materialistic trust that you have in this world? And will you make a line in the sand that says, I'm going to be hot or I'm going to be cold. I'm going to be useful. I'm going to be useful with my life. I'm not going to be lukewarm anymore. I'm going to be useful. And will you answer that knock that he's been knocking on the door of your heart to spend time with him? So, Father, forgive us where we have pursued financial security and materialism. Father, forgive us. May we only put our trust in you. I pray that we would be useful this week. We would be hot or we would be cold. Father, I pray that we would have salve to put on our eyes to bring healing so that we could spiritually see where we are deceived. Father, pull back that deception. May we be the most giving people in the world. Pull back that deception in my life, in our lives. And Father, um, I pray that we would open up the door to you today. So just, um, yeah, as I'm praying, even open up the door to him now. Father, I just open up the door to you. 
invite you in again. In Jesus' name, amen.